Hello there and welcome to this episode of the Thinking Commercially podcast with me, Ben Triggs, and the wonderful Chris Stokes. We cover the big stories of the month and give you business awareness. This month, what we're covering is why are markets so shaken by the mini budget? The new survey that shows the bosses think staff do less from home. We talk a little bit about money laundering and we finish with a story about Gen Z and their expectations from the workplace. All of this and more in this episode. Let's get started. Hello, Chris, and welcome to this episode of the podcast. How have you been over the last month? Been very well, Ben. It's great to be back. Yes, it is. We are back with a proper episode. Not saying that last time wasn't a proper episode, but it was our application special. And um, but we are back uh, this month focusing on three key stories from the last month. And my God, has a lot happened over that month. Um, And then also ending on a bit of a fun one as well, which I think we might need after uncovering all of the things that have been going on and trying to give you that commercial awareness. You've been seeing all of the headlines at the moment, but what we want to do is try and make it as relevant to you, help you with the understanding to start with, but then also really hone in on how It can be applied to the applications that you might be doing in the near future. But also, if you're starting in the working world, what you might need to know, what's useful to know to make sure that you've got a good grounding in the business world around you. But hopefully, hopefully we can add some cheer. We are um, always optimistic on this on this podcast and add some cheer about what have been some quite turbulent times. Um, So, Chris, are you ready to get going? Absolutely. Let's crack on with the first story. So the first story that we've got to start on and everyone will be wanting to start on, expecting us to start on, is the mini budget. So since we last spoke, or at least since the last uh, series, we've got a new prime minister. We've had two new chancellors um, and we've also had a mini budget which has been announced and then basically denounced by the new chancellor. Um, about three weeks later. In our time of talking, Liz Truss is still the Prime Minister, but we don't want to focus on that side of things. Um, We want to really give you an understanding of what has happened. Obviously, it's a a live situation. It's still moving, but it's been going on for probably about three or four weeks now, Um, but also how it impacts uh, the wider business world. So, Chris, going back to its core, Liz Truss came in as Prime Minister with the the big focus on increasing productivity and driving growth. I think in a speech, she actually said she was focused on three things, which were growth, growth, and growth. Why is that so important at this time? It's a good question. And, and kind of pulling back from the day-to-day and setting this in context, she wasn't wrong in talking about the need for productivity. This, this country in particular, but it's true of the world in general, We've had flatlining growth for about 20 odd years. And the the reason why that's not a good thing is because, and and I'm not an economist, and it took me a while to understand this, growth is not a zero-sum game. The world can actually become richer without any individuals suffering as a result. So over time, the world has become wealthier if you go back one or 200 years. But in order to maintain that increase in wealth, countries have to be productive. And in this country, we've not really been that productive for the last 20 odd years. And we've actually been living beyond our means. We've been spending more than we earn uh, and we've been borrowing the money that we spend. So this trust's emphasis on growth and productivity was itself not misplaced. And I think her approach was that the things that the Conservative government have tried over the last 10 years haven't worked. The last thing we had was an attempt to curb our spending through austerity. And so I think her view was, well, let's try something new. And the only problem with trying something new is that if it's unconventional, that the markets by definition are conventional. And so they're not going to like it unless you explain properly what it is you're doing. Yeah. And I think my next question was going to be why it went so wrong. And I think ultimately um, you you've kind of hit the nail on the head with that last sentence that you just sort of said there that a 
um, it wasn't explained properly and it didn't have the backing of the OBR, the Bank of England. Um, but was there anything else that you noted of why um, it went so badly wrong and why the markets were so shaken by it? Well, I, I think it was the sidelining of the of, of the OBR and the Bank of England, which didn't help, because usually the Office for Budget Responsibility is asked to give a, a kind of analysis of what the politicians are proposing. And um, because the OBR didn't do that, in a sense, the markets couldn't see Liz Truss's underlying working. You remember how in, in exams, you're always encouraged to show your working so that even if you got the answer wrong, at least the examiner could see that you knew what you were doing. And so the markets couldn't see that the government's working, as it were. And that there is something else. That there was a further drawback to her approach. It was unconventional, but she was proposing to scrap a whole lot of taxes at a time when the government needs income because uh, it's going to pay for the, the energy price cap. And also it's very unproven that if you provide tax cuts to the richest, they will then go out and spend more money and that will trickle down to the rest of us, the kind of trickle down economy. Because uh, if, if you look at spending habits, the poorest in society spend the most of their money. They, they, they're, they're unable to save anything. And most of it goes on just pure living. The richest in society actually spend the least of their money. So giving the rich more money is not going to encourage them to spend and for that money to enter the economy. So, so even her approach was, was kind of open to question, apart from the fact of not actually showing how she was going to balance the books. There's always these headlines where it goes, markets are shaken or the markets are in turmoil or, or whatever word that you want to, to use. Um, those are quite generic phrases, Chris. So what actually happens to show that they are either shaken or in turmoil? Media headlines always like to, to be dramatic. Mm -hmm. Well, what actually happened was, was this, that the government borrows money by issuing bonds, which are kind of IOUs. And UK government bonds are called rather quaintly gilts, because in the old days, when they were bits of cardboard, they had a silver edge to them. So government bonds, the formal name for UK government bonds is gilt edged security. Now, I, I mentioned earlier that we've been living beyond our means for some time, and we've been borrowing money. And so if you want to borrow more money, you're really dependent on people being prepared to lend that money to you by buying gilts. And the market, in other words, uh, the financial markets that own gilts, their view was, well, we're not sure that the figures add up. So if you want to borrow more money from us, we're going to charge you a higher rate of interest. And so basically what happened was that the markets imposed a higher rate of interest. And the way they do that on existing gilts is basically by marking their value down, because uh, the value of bonds moves inversely to the effective rate of interest that they pay. So in order to get a higher rate of interest from government bonds, you sell them at a lower value and that automatically increases their yield as it's called. So basically what happened was that yields went up, which meant, meant bond prices went down. And then there was a bit of a sideshow because UK pension funds, which are big gilts owners, they had to sell their gilts to meet something called the margin calls on the uh, liability-driven investing, LDI, that a lot of pension funds these days have to do in order to show the regulators that in the future, they'll be able to meet the claims on their funds. In other words, future beneficiaries, future pensioners. Um, and so that became a kind of a vicious circle where uh, pension funds were having to dump guilds. That was driving their price down even further. They were therefore having to dump more, which is why the Bank of England stepped in. But essentially, this business about you know uh, markets being shaken, it all really happened in the bond market, and in particular in the UK government gilts market. And the problem is with things like what's happened over the last um, three, four weeks, is that confidence in the UK government managing money has gone down. So we need to borrow money to cover stuff like supporting people with energy bills. But the rate that we can borrow at is going to increase those interest rates, the amount of money we need to repay will increase, which in turn, increases the overall debt. So it does have an impact. And what 
chancellors are trying to do and what Rishi Sunak was trying to do and what Jeremy Hunt's talking about um, in the last few days is making sure that we keep the debt under control and actually trying to reduce the debt um, down. But things like the last three weeks are not going to help that. Anyway, Chris, I mentioned it in the uh, the the last little bit, bit of a rant, to be honest with you, that I, I, I gave uh, I gave just the last couple of minutes ago was around mortgages. They made the front page headlines a couple of weeks ago, and they continue to do so. Actually, there was a news story today saying they're on a forty-year high um, in terms of the two-year two-year mortgage. What is happening there, and why is it so impactful? Well, a, a couple of things, and just to reiterate what you were saying about um, you know governments being borrowers. Of course, the disadvantage of interest rates going up is that the UK government now has to spend more money servicing its debt, and that's money mm. that could otherwise be spent on services. There's an immediate impact at that level. But what's happened in the mortgage market? But mo- most people these days tend to get fixed deals for mortgages. And as soon as uh, mortgage lenders see that rates are going to go up, they withdraw those those fixed deals. And the the impact on the mortgage market is dramatic because um, it was actually a banker who pointed out to me that many, many years ago, interest rates went from about 1% up to 2%. And I said to this banker, why does that matter? He said, no, Chris, you don't understand. If interest rates have gone from 1% to 2%, they still sound quite low, but your cost of borrowing has just doubled. And what's happened in the mortgage market is that fixed rate deals were at around 2%, they're now at 6%. That means somebody's cost of borrowing has tripled. And that is a massive, massive impact when you consider how constrained people are anyway. House prices are very high. They've got energy bills to worry about. So um, I, I think when this became real for people is when they realized that Um, their mortgages were going to suddenly become more expensive. A a lot of people who were about to borrow found their deals withdrawn. And and I mean, my view is that most of what politicians do doesn't really affect us. But when it does, people really notice. And this has affected people, and they have really noticed. Typically, if stuff like mortgages go up, people have as will obviously be the case, have less disposable income, they spend less money in the economy, things don't move quite as well. And actually, we're in a very weird situation because we've also at the same time, we've got high inflation, which actually today, um, we're recording on uh, on Wednesday, today was um, at 10.1%, which I think is the highest in a number of decades now. And so it's quite a well, it's a perfect storm. It's a very weird storm as well, because typically if mortgage rates are going up, people can't spend as much. So prices um, won't inflate so much. However, because of external factors like the Ukraine war, oil prices, the cost of getting food into the UK, um, we've got inflation. So things are costing more and people have less money, which is why there's that prediction of a, of a recession um, in, in, uh, in the future. And actually, I think some commentators believe we're already in a recession, whereas others um, believe it will happen in the coming months. Well, well, well one of the problems with, um, with what's happened recently is that because international financial confidence in the UK has dropped, the pound has gone down because uh, overseas investors... Uh, sell the pound rather than needing to buy it to invest in the UK because they're taking their money out of the UK. The pound going down means the cost of our imports goes up, which itself is inflationary. Our imports, and because we live beyond our means, we import a lot of stuff, those are more expensive. And the Bank of England was caught between exactly as you were saying, Ben, uh, with inflation going up, uh, a standard response is to increase interest rates because that, that depresses spending. So the Bank of England, on the one hand, had to increase interest rates in the face of inflation. Then it had to offer to buy gilts because the gilt market uh, was was out of control. And that in itself is inflationary because you're putting more money into the market at the the very point when you as the Bank of England don't don't want to do that. So um, the the regulators are, are torn between, on the one hand, trying to keep the cost of borrowing low for, for mortgage holders, but on the other hand, faced with, with incredibly high inflation. Uh, so exactly as you say, this is a very, very odd time. I want to bring it back um, together to something in business. 
um, which is quite prominent that people, maybe as students, may have not heard of, but I think you come aware of it as you start in the business world. Naturally, you couldn't end up being one of these people if you go and work for one of the big um, consultants um, that you would would have heard about and uh, are very popular amongst uh, graduates uh, to go into their schemes. But it feels to me that um, Liz Truss and the government, their change management was was poor. They didn't communicate it well enough. They uh, they didn't have their figures when they needed them um, and ended up having to row back, which um, was a bit of a disaster. Um, but I think it kind of, if you think about business more widely, Chris, it feels like actually if you're going to bring in changes, which is what they were trying to do, um, they need to have a better way of communicating and driving those those changes. And I think any changes in business um, require that thought process to to go into them to make sure um, that they are done effectively and all stakeholders are on board with the changes that are about to come in. What are your thoughts, Chris? Well, there's a real read across to the corporate world here, because if you're a listed company, your shares are listed on, on the stock exchange, you're a public company. One of the things you've got to be really, really good at doing is communicating to the market how well your business is doing. And generally speaking, if a business fails to meet its projected levels of income, turnover, profit, and it announces to the market that it's not met those expectations, its share price can collapse between 20 and 50% overnight. In other words, the value of the business can, can almost halve as a result. So CEOs are really adept at communicating to the market what their financial expectations are. Because when, when a company does that, it tells the market two things. First of all, you're not in control of your business because you didn't know that your profitability was going to be this impacted. And secondly, you're not in control of the messages that you're putting out. And funny enough, in all of this, I, I came across a, an expression which politicians started using, which is straight from the sports world, which will appeal to, to, to you and me, Ben. And that is um, Liz Truss failed to roll the pitch, which uh, um, I'm assuming comes from cricket. You know, when you, you roll, you, you, you roll the, the track between the wickets. And so a lot of commentators started saying, yes, yeah, she failed to roll the pitch. In other words, to prepare people for what she was doing. But certainly, I think one of the reasons why the corporate world is singularly unimpressed with this, partly because their borrowing costs have shot up, is because in the corporate world, you know, if, if you mismanage that communication to the market about how well your business is doing, that's, um, that, that can be really, really serious. Amazing. Thanks so much, Chris. We'll leave that story there for this time. Bosses are thinking that staff do less work from home. However, staff believe that they're more productive from home. So we're kind of stuck in a bit of a weird situation here where you've got people saying we're doing a great job from home, but the people that are managing them are less convinced about it. And this is according to a recent Microsoft survey. You might have read the headlines about it where I think something like 80% of people believe that um, they do more, they're more effective from home. I think it's 87%. Um, but 80% of bosses disagree with that. They actually think that they do less from home. They're less effective. They're more likely to procrastinate. We're kind of in this weird state at the moment, I've, I feel, where um, most companies, especially the technologically advanced companies, so companies where you don't have to be on site to build something, to produce something, to manufacture something. Um, so kind of more, I'd say, modern uh, tech-enabled businesses, let's say, are trialing different versions of flexible working. So whether it's flexible during the day of what hours you can potentially work or being able to have um, some bits and pieces of time off if you if you need it and complete your work at at different hours but then also the flexibility about where you do actually work and a lot of businesses have kind of fallen somewhere in the middle saying that there's a requirement to be in the office for some of the week and maybe on set specific days and then there is the opportunity to work remote at different times and people have varying degrees of freedom about when those days are um, as well but I wouldn't say that people are settled 
on what's the best policy still. And I think this survey, where the data shows it's so, such a variety between um, employees and employers, um, kind of highlights this as well. Are people doing more work? Are we going to be more productive because we can work remote and we have that flexibility? Or do you think we need to be back in the office? I find this sounds almost uh, old fashioned. It sounds almost Mm. out of date. And remember, it is only what Microsoft think bosses think. But my reaction being of an older generation is that these bosses are themselves from older generations. In due course, they're going to be gone. And their job is to attract the sort of people that we hope are listening to this podcast, you know, the young, talented professionals that they need for their businesses to be successful. And the fact is that I think young people want a better balance of working in an office and and working from home. And what I thought COVID had shown us was that a blended way of working, partly at work, partly from home, does work well. And and I think now that people have experienced that, it's impossible to put that genie back in the bottle and require full-time attendance at the workplace. I just don't see that happening. I do think that the pandemic probably did show that working full-time remote is definitely possible um, by the pandemic. But I think there were studies that suggested that having that... um, in-person interaction especially for creative teams um as well um but just to do with the team building is is still important but that doesn't require being in the office um five five days five days a week but i do think that we need um a bit of a balance and i think that healthy balance that people are or companies are getting to um is is hopefully starting to work well and hopefully we'll start seeing the data and it will be longitudinal data i think um, whereas some of these kind of flash in the pan surveys are, uh, um, yeah, as you say, there, there is um, high levels of scepticism about them. Um, Chris, I just wondered, though, that is this showing a kind of resistance to, to, to change? And actually over your time in sort of the, the working world, is that something, and it can be about anything, is there that feeling that the resistance to change has, uh, has maybe held some businesses back and maybe it also led to others gaining an advantage? Well, I, I think so. And certainly it started with relaxation of dress code. This idea that your life in work and your life outside work shouldn't be completely divorced from each other. And again, setting this in a kind of commercial context, it's very interesting what... Um, businesses and those involved in commercial property are doing at the moment because businesses that are based in cities are beginning to shed some of their surplus office space because they know that they won't have all of their people in the office all the time. A lot of commercial property owners are turning their offices into shared spaces and uh, a lot of ERP providers, ERP is enterprise resource planning. It's, It's often software-based solutions that enable the back office parts of businesses, such as HR and training, uh, to to link up with each other. And more and more ERP providers are enabling businesses to manage a remote workforce. So I think this is an unstoppable trend. And the, the the only caveat is, especially for those listening, I think that when you're new to the world of work, you probably need to spend more time in the workplace Um, getting to grips with the the culture of your employer, getting to meet the people who are your colleagues that you'll be working alongside and and your supervisors. But once you're kind of established in an organization and and you know your way around, I think at that point, it's much easier to be able to, to work remotely. And by then you will have built up the trust amongst your supervisors who know that you don't have to be in this presenteeism Ben, that you're referring to. You don't, you don't have to be seen to be there for them to know that you're, you're being very productive. I think it's all about ways of working um, as well and productivity. And we're going back to productivity. We were looking at productivity on a, uh, on a, a wider picture, bigger picture, the government trying to increase productivity. But we're looking at this as individual organizations trying to increase the productivity of, of their workforce. So it does feel feel right to give people more flexibility. That feels they'll be happier, they're more likely to do better work. But you can't just do that and expect people 
to um, to produce the same output. You also need the structures in place. And maybe that's where we haven't quite caught up. Some organizations haven't quite got it right yet because you need to make sure that people um, are singing from the same hymn sheet, working to the same goals and are both incentivized in, in, the, in the right way, both from a pay and a non-pay um, way, but also are really clear on their objectives. So they know what they need to, what outputs they need to achieve. And if we become as, 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 as a country more focused on the outputs that people are producing and less focused on the inputs, inputs being the amount of time, where they're doing it, um, um, what they're doing even in some cases, and actually what the results are, then flexible working and remote working should be um, positive because people feel better about it. They're more likely to want to hit their targets and strive towards them. But that line management needs to be really, really, probably actually needs more attention um, focused on it. And the one thing that I've always um, found in the working world, and I reflect on myself as, as well in this, is that you can be brilliant. Let's say I'm, I'm marketing. I, I could be the best marketeer out there. I'm not saying I am, but I could be the best marketeer out there. But that doesn't mean that I'm necessarily good at managing other marketeers. I'd be very good at doing a session to show marketeers how to do things, but actually managing people to achieve the best results. Those are two very different skills. And maybe actually, this is highlighting maybe that this kind of idea of leadership and management needs to be worked on more. And actually some of the problems when people are uh, uh, away from their desk, possibly not uh, particularly motivated, they aren't doing as much work. They're reaching um, for the TV remote. They're sort of starting a bit later and stuff like that. But that's a motivation problem, not a location problem in my mind. What are your thoughts, Chris? Well, I, I was I was going to say that uh, you you are a boss, Ben, and mm. certainly a lot of those things you just said uh, are very heartfelt. Um, are, are you finding that in your role as a boss, you're having to think much more carefully about the way you you manage members of your team because they're working remotely? What what do you think about all of that? Yeah, I, I think so. And actually, there are there are some more challenges on the wider piece where people are more remote, you're trying to make it work. But if you're in the office, and there is the kind of what I'd describe as the more HR side, but I'd say it's more personal side of, of management as well, you can notice from mile off if you're starting seeing a couple of days in a row where someone's not quite feeling it or something's going on at home, maybe or, or something like that, that's more difficult to spot if people are and working remote because you can't see them, you can't get the feel of of, of what they're what they're up to in the office. Um, I work in creative teams. I, I think there is still a huge advantage um, bringing people in to have creative sessions. Um, I think it is a little bit easy at times, especially if you're doing a couple of hours of creative thinking to get a little bit distracted when you're on Zoom by stuff popping up. Whereas you can get in a meeting room and and uh, you know, ban phones, ban ban computers, and have an idea session. So I think there are huge advantages to to bringing people together still, especially in the creative roles that I work for. There are also just on the pastoral support side of things, um, seeing people face to face. Gaining that kind of reaction and communicating them in person, I think, is very important. So, I think full remote roles, there is challenges still for those. However, it's all about incentivizing the the right behaviors and also getting them bought into the mission. And that hasn't changed whether it's in the office or out of the office. It's just that if someone isn't bought in and someone is demotivated, they probably have more opportunity out of the office to um, express that sort of demotivation and not work towards towards their goals. But with all of this and everything, I take it with a big pinch of salt and I think it's a motivation issue. And I'm not saying I always get it right as a manager and I'm not saying as an employee to the person that manages me, I always get it right as well. Um, and I've definitely had days both in the office and out of the office where I have not been the, the most productive. Um, I've not been in the right headspace to, to do that day's work and that happens to everyone. Um, but I think if you're generally moving in the right direction, you've got the right people on the pitch, so to speak, going back to another sports reference, and they really understand you've simply defined what they need to do and what they're looking to achieve, and they are working towards that. doesn't matter. They can, they can work from you know, 
North Scotland, they can work from abroad, they can um, work from um, a flat in London, uh, or they can work from the office. Um, uh, they should be working towards um, their goals and feeling motivated about them. Final question, Chris. Um, Microsoft, you commented at the uh, at the start that, um, oh, it seemed a bit interesting that Microsoft were doing this survey right here, right now. I think um, the element of uh, cynicism might have uh, uh, come through with you. Is there any reason, do you think, or there must be some reason why Microsoft are doing um, surveys like this? Because obviously these cost a lot of money. This is tens of thousands of people across 11 countries. Um, so why, what's your sense of why Microsoft might be releasing this data right well, now? Well, it's interesting because in a previous life, I used to um, copyright, uh, uh, write, in other words, write the copy, write, write the words around a lot of these sort of surveys that were commissioned for PR purposes in order to get into the media. Now, Microsoft is a very, very clever company. So I, I wonder why they have uh, published this research and got the publicity they have now. And I can't help feeling that it's somehow to promote their product teams because we all became familiar with the word Zoom during COVID. But maybe what they're saying is, maybe the subliminal message is, um, however, if you use our product, you will actually find that your team members, wherever they are, will not only be more productive, but appear to be more productive. So I just wonder, and I think this is a commercial awareness point of looking at what businesses do and just asking yourself, why are they actually doing that? So in fact, have they done this to provoke a discussion? After all, they've they've got our interest and we've just been talking about it for the last 20 minutes. So maybe actually they really are just trying to provoke a reaction, which is, no, surely that can't be right, you know. So I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think so. Well, now now we've also mentioned Zoom. So we, and we may as well mention Google Hangout as well. They all three are available for for team meetings. So so there you go. But um, but no, I I, I agree. I think. Um, businesses want to inform the market and it's not all as cynical maybe as as as, as we make out like you know kpmg let's say produce um, in-depth reports on something or, or or whatever it might be we talked about them doing a report on something on i think on shopping or shops That's or something right. about right. in the in previous series and um you know they want to show that they're the experts in the market that they are having those discussions as well so it could be the element of um microsoft understanding people and what the challenges of bosses are what the challenges of employees are um and uh, as you say um being at the forefront of the discussion because um that was top of bbc kind of news um uh, over the last couple of weeks and it was on my notes when it came into just doing this episode thanks chris We'll leave it there for this story. So I was in Germany this week, um, and that isn't a reason to start bragging or anything, anything like that. It was with work. Right now, we have launched in Germany. If you if you haven't haven't heard, and that's why we were we were there. Um, but that's not the reason I am talking about it. The reason is is because I got the BBC World Service, so I started picking up news from um, across the world and the business news that maybe sometimes I miss out on. And one of the stories that got me um, hooked and fascinated, maybe. Uh, um, maybe my enjoyment of a, of a of a quick bet on the Grand National football occasionally made made it so. But an Australian casino group was fined fifty five um, million, um, which I think is the biggest fine, um, definitely in Australia, maybe even uh, globally, for failing to stop um, money laundering. And actually, it got me thinking that it's a topic which comes up quite a lot, and people mention it um, quite a lot in different news stories. It's been mentioned. Um, quite a lot in relation to the sort of oligarchs, the Russian oligarchs that we're freezing assets or have frozen assets on. Um, and just more generally, there's typically every so often a BBC panorama um, show about a different form or different types of, of money laundering. But I think it's something where a lot of people don't really know exactly what it is and also the impact um, to not just individuals that maybe get caught up in it, but also the, uh, the, the wider economy. So, Chris, if it's all right with you, um, what I'd like to, to cover is a little bit about money laundering, but also um, maybe looking at the modern technology, supporting how um, some of the problems with it are being solved over in, in recent years. 
hopefully that's okay with you. And hopefully we can start with just generally what is money laundering? Uh, well, money laundering is about getting money that's made from illegal activities such as uh, uh, drugs, sale of weapons, human trafficking and slavery into the financial system where it is laundered by being merged with clean money. And this idea of laundering, you, you now see it cropping up in terms like greenwashing, which is when uh, corporates uh, try to show that they've got green credentials, but are then called out because they're, they're not as green as they might say. And also in sports washing, where um, often um, regimes uh, try to improve their public image by pumping money into, into sports. So it's all to do with, with uh, washing money, laundering money. Um, and in terms of the impact of it, there's there's an outfit called the Tax Justice Network, which for many, many years now has campaigned against bank secrecy in offshore jurisdictions and money being taken out of poor countries and being secreted in different parts of the world. And they reckon that the amount of money that has been deposited in these tax havens is over $20 trillion. And the lost income tax, that's the, the income tax that should have been paid, but isn't paid on, on this illicit money, comes to uh, over $400 billion a year. And the importance of that is that that is money that could be used around the world to alleviate poverty. So this is a very real problem with very real consequences. Um, could you go into a little bit more detail, Chris, around how banks and financial institutions try to prevent it? Because you've talked about potentially how they could do better or be more open. But what are the markets doing to regulate it and what are financial institutions required to do and also doing to make sure that um, they know where their money is, uh, is, is coming from, from those transactions that we talk about? Well, there's a huge amount of regulation around this, but at heart, it's really very simple. It's knowing who it is you're dealing with and knowing what the source of their money is that they want you to do something with, for example, put it on, on deposit. So the, the regulations tend to affect uh, institutions like banks because they process uh, money going around the world and also uh, professionals like accountants and lawyers because they're often involved in transactions which could, if they're not careful, in, involve uh, laundering illicit money. And these regulations essentially require you to KYC, so know your client. So who are they? Are they really who they say they are? Have you carried out those sort of checks? And then AML procedures, anti-money laundering uh, procedures, which are ways of uh, looking behind to see where the money actually comes from. And so the way government has tended to react to this around the world is to put the emphasis and to put the onus on those who deal with these individuals and those who process the, the money that, that they bring to the financial markets to, to be laundered. So I think there's two questions that I want to ask. Why London has become such a hotspot? And second of all, how does the link between this laundered money and actually costing the economy and impacting individuals and businesses? Well, the, the, it, it is true that uh, a lot of this has uh, in the past taken place in London. Partly that's because London is the top international financial market. So in a sense, you'd expect it to happen here. And also the, the very thing that attracts this sort of money, for example, the rule of law in the UK, the fact that it's a prosperous economy, where uh, individual rights are respected. Those, those are very important because they give people confidence when they're shifting money here. Um, the, the, the way you see it is in the amount of UK property that is bought for offshore owners. And um, the UK has actually tried to do things about this, but I think in a slightly half-hearted way, partly because there have been other things on government's minds, you know, as we as we know at the moment. But for example, requiring offshore companies that buy UK property to reveal who their ultimate owners are, who, uh, in legal terms, who their beneficial owners are, trying to help companies house, which is the 
the part of government where details of UK companies are, are registered and, and where, where you can inspect company records, um, giving Companies House the resource to go behind uh, companies to see who the owners are. So that there are attempts that have been made uh, over the recent past, but I think what's really brought it into um, uh, perspective really is the recent crackdown on Russian oligarchs following the invasion of Ukraine by Russia and how quickly that was done and how effectively that has been done, which shows that where there is the political will, we can certainly do something about it. Why does it cost our economy? Because although uh, London's a financial market earns fees from processing this money, undoubtedly, if you've got a lot of UK assets that are owned offshore, then you're not able to tax them and you're not able to tax the increases in value that those assets accrue. So there is a cost to the UK economy from all of this, um, which I think on balance means that we really do need to do more about this than, than we have in the recent past. Things are starting to change and modern technology um, is coming in to support uh, AML um, and know your client checks. What do you see happening in the market, Chris? Well, um, I know that listeners will be aware of Bitcoin and, and no doubt, therefore, they're aware of blockchain. It's very interesting that financial institutions have been much more interested in blockchain than in Bitcoin. And what blockchain does is it basically records in a way that cannot subsequently be undone the history of a transaction so that you'll know with, with uh, Bitcoin, for example, that... Um, you, you know the history of who has owned that before you. And I think banks probably see blockchain as a way of enabling them to track the history of money that is passing through their hands. So already a lot of um, the application of AML regulation is through technology. Um, and you'll know that uh, because increasingly everything is online, that if you're trying to open a bank account these days, there are an awful lot of reg regulatory processes you've got to go through. But I think in the long term, blockchain could help financial institutions have a real record on where these things ultimately originate from. And that'll be one of the keys to solving it. That's it for this week on that story. And we're going to move to our final story. So in the last month, Bright Network have released a bit of research. So thank you very much. If you're listening to this podcast, you are a current student. You may have filled out a, a survey, um, anonymous survey, which is part of, of this research about um, Gen Z. And um, if you, you are in Gen Z, if you're under the age of 25, and I think if you're above the age of about 11. So I think in my mind, and maybe Chris, yourself as, as well, we see Gen Z as possibly being... Um, sort of teenagers currently at school or possibly in education, these are the people that are forming um, the graduate level of the of the workforce now, those 22 to, to 25 year olds and actually starting to become, you know, on the next rung, possibly starting to think about how they can um, develop into managers. So when Chris earlier talked about um, sort of the older school managers moving on and Gen Z being uh, managers in the next probably five years, um, that is uh, that is creeping up on us. Um, but there's, there's a couple of things that came out, which I was uh, quite interested just to chat about. Um, but uh, and also to get Chris's opinions on them. Chris has been in the working world, seen huge amount of change um, over the, the the previous decades, um, and um, things are clearly changing at a rapid rate at the moment. And the pandemic, as we discussed uh, on lots of different episodes, has has maybe um, changed it in a slightly different way than maybe expected, or sped up certain elements of change, slowed down some changes as as well. Um, but the idea of a side hustle, Chris, so someone having a, uh, an interest, possibly a financial interest, um, or working on a project outside of their work and possibly needing slightly less time at work, aka a four-day week, um, to, to, to do it. From 
your side of things and looking at the business perspective, but also trying to marry that up with the want of a side hustle. And about four in five students are interested in a side hustle, the research suggests. Um, what, what are your thoughts? Do you think that's a worry for business? Um, do you think this is a, a good thing that, um, that side hustles are becoming a, uh, a possibly a bigger part of the, the conversation amongst the younger generation? Well, I, I think, and this is reflected in, in what we've been saying so far in this podcast, that any employer, if they want to attract talented young people, they're going to really have to adopt the mindset that means they understand what Gen Z want. And um, just putting this in a historical context, there's something called the, the psychological contract, which some Harvard academic talked about many decades ago. And, and in the old, old days, the psychological contract was, you spend your life working for me. And when you retire, I'll ensure that you've got enough to live on until you die. And then that changed to, and this was during my working life, um, you work for me. I know it won't be for all of your working life, but I will in turn provide you with the training to make you uh, uh, remain relevant to the market. And some of the most enlightened employers, they would provide their employees with training that actually made, meant them they were very marketable. So the risk was that your star employees would go off. But of course, in making them very marketable, they knew that they wouldn't get that level of training elsewhere. So they'd stay with you. Now here, and I think, I think the, the, the report bears this out. I think if um, a Gen Z employee comes to me and says, look, I want to do these things uh, outside work or as an adjunct to work. And the reason I want to do it is this, but these are the benefits to you. I think that's a conversation that an employer has to be prepared to undertake because what's interesting about all of this is the whole notion of employment is very, very fluid. I've spent a lot of my life self-employed freelance and uh, so I'm used to having that freelance mindset on the one hand and being an employee on the other. And I think actually in future, people are going to have to do that anyway, because the world is changing so much. Our, our jobs individually is to ensure that we individually remain relevant to the market, because otherwise we won't have any, any uh, work to do, any income coming in. So I think if one way of remaining relevant to the market is by having a side hustle, and you can show an employer why that will make you a better employee and so why it will benefit them. I think employers have got to listen to that. So I've kind of just realized in what you've just said is that I'm talking to a kind of a, an OG side hustler in terms of um, you've had a number of different business interests, including your books, including the training that you've done, including the work you've done as a, as a, as a lawyer. Um, for a number of years now. Well, I've, I've been very lucky in going from being employed to being self-employed and then going back into an employment uh, situation. And, and I think that's, that, that's what Gen Z will be doing. In fact, you see, reading the report, I just thought, I, I, I don't want to sound down with the kids because I'm far too antique to be that. But I, I thought that, that Gen Z were just talking a lot of sense. I thought, wow, mm -hmm. these are really really interesting, enlightened young people, and I would want to employ them. And I think employers are just going to have to think that if they, if they want to recruit talented young people, definitely. So one other thing which um, I think is, is actually very sensible um, as well, but could surprise quite a few people, is we asked the question around um, socialising um, at work. And this won't surprise them that a lot of people want to have friends um, at work. I think it was pretty much unanimous that like building friendships beyond just being colleagues was uh, was something that was uh, that was uh, important to people. I get that you want to go in into the office not just to do your work but also to meet people, connect with people, um, and ultimately, you know, we typically make friends with the people that are around us. You know, you go to school, you uh, then you might join certain clubs, like you might play sport, music, and you you, you typically have people that have a, a similar similar things going on in their life and the same with the, with the working world. However, the thing that surprised me a little bit is that um, a lot of people or most students either thought that alcohol or drinking played no place in social events um, in, in, in the modern workplace. And actually, the rest of people, a lot of the rest of people were actually very indifferent whether it did or it didn't. Um, 
Chris, what are your thoughts? You've seen kind of the working world over uh, many years. I don't want to dwell on on that point, so apologies apologies for that. But my sense is is that um, the drinking culture in in London and what I've seen even you know five years ago, ten years ago, it felt part of that culture. Whereas that's kind of slipping away a little bit. Maybe actually that's uh, quite a good thing. Oh, I, I mean, uh, I have a 27-year-old son, and he doesn't like alcohol. He's not against drinking, but he just doesn't like alcohol. And um, I, I was very heartened by that, because I think this idea of um, social drinking at work is necessary. The, there were a lot of people who felt uncomfortable about the requirement that to appear sociable, they had to drink, when in fact, they didn't want to do that at all. Um so I was actually very heartened to see that. And the other word that really struck me was boundaried. I thought, yeah, I, I, and, and one, the report refers to, you know, post me too. But the idea that Gen Z, they are boundaried in, in the way that they, they develop working and other relationships. And I really like that. It made me, made me realize that, that the, these are young people who have a very clear idea of what matters to them. And it goes back to transparency. So I wasn't surprised about mm. that. I was actually quite heartened to see and think, that. And I think it is sensible. I think, you know, having friends at work um, is very important. And I, I don't think anyone wants to take that away. There was a quote I said in the office, slightly jokingly, that it was colleagues, not friends uh, at some point and stuff like that. It was a complete joke. And I actually um, have always believed that um, is important to form relationships and if you get on better with with certain people as long as you're professional and it doesn't cross that line or that you're favoring certain people because you get on with them better I think that's where it slips into slight problems you've got to keep that facade and that that professionalism when you're in a work setting and see that boundary between work and social but uh, uh, yeah I think you know we've all seen um, big drinks and uh, big nights out and stuff and things happen which um, definitely shouldn't happen in a in a work work setting it doesn't just happen because people have had had drinks and also as you say there there is the potential that people could be excluded um from there if they don't want to drink um and that feeling that you ought to do something you don't feel comfortable doing should never occur in the in in the working world you should always want to include as many people as possible and i think the culture is changing and has changed in a huge number of organizations and diversity has been so important to that um but it's quite refreshing that people are coming into the working world and seeing that um already from the start without even actually seeing what the working world is like a lot of people surveyed haven't experienced the working world yet um but that's how they want it to be and i think that's a good positive um continuation of the change that we have seen in the in the last few years chris i think that's all we've got time for uh this month's episode i really enjoyed it we've covered quite an array of 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 subjects hopefully it wasn't too downheartening hopefully it's given you lots of ideas and lots of commercial awareness um, but yeah, really had a fun one. And thank you again, Chris. Not at all. It's been a pleasure as always, Ben. Thank you very much. What a brilliant episode. Make sure you check out the LinkedIn and Instagram Thinking Commercially for all the insights around the episode. Until next month, it's a goodbye from me. Have a good month.